Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Father, we thank you for this night and pray that um, as we study 2 Corinthians, that um, you give us insight you know what you would teach us. Thank you for this rich time and thank you for the challenge that we all give to one another as we study your word and we we just enjoy the fellowship here, Father. But help us to learn and help us to change because of it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but um, before we go into chapter 6, I want to just um, talk a little bit more about the last verse of chapter 5. All right. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Um, This verse here is probably the greatest statement in all of scripture um, when it comes to what death of Christ was all about. Really. Um, it's misunderstood by a lot of people, and it's really um, twisted by some to mean something it really doesn't mean. And I'd like to talk about that just a little bit because you're all going to be um, exposed to that, especially if you listen to the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which you shouldn't be listening to. But if you do, um, you're going to be exposed to this. Um, basically, there's two words that, that are really key in this, um, two theological concepts that are key. One is called imputation, imputation, and the other word is substitution, imputation and substitution. Both of those are very key concepts, theological concepts, all right? Basically, what substitution refers to is Christ taking our place. He took our place on the cross. Um, Instead of us suffering the wrath of God, he suffered the wrath of God. He paid the price that we should have paid. Um, This is seen in the Old Testament types. For example, remember when Abraham was to take Isaac up on the mountain. And uh, just as the knife was about to fall, God stopped him. And what did God provide? A substitute, a ram with his horns caught in a thicket. Um, Passover, what was that all a picture about? Substitution, right? Um, The scapegoat, what was that a picture of? Well, substitution and imputation, which is the next word here. But probably if you want to, if you, if you really want to boil the whole concept of, um, the whole doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation down to one word, if you boil it all down, I think probably the best word to describe it is substitution. Christ took my place. Um, instead of me paying the penalty for my sin, he paid it for me because it was something that I couldn't pay. All right. It's something that I couldn't, couldn't, could never pay. And um, why is this substitution and imputation so important? Well, what is the grand end of salvation? What is it? What is God trying to accomplish? Restore the relationship. Restore the relationship that was lost, Right. 
Um, some people say, well, the end of salvation is to get me in heaven. Yeah, that's good. That's not the end. Um, the end of salvation is for me to enjoy the presence of God. Well, that's good, but that's not totally the whole thing. Um, the end of salvation is to restore the relationship that was shattered in the garden when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit. It's restoration. That's what reconciliation is. Why did God design salvation? Why did God send Christ to restore a relationship with him? And how do you restore a relationship? If you got a shattered relationship, what do you need in order to restore that relationship? Think about it. You have a two people have a have a have a big fight, a big falling out. All right. What are the steps involved to restore a relationship in that? Well, it's got to be reconciliation, right? And there's two components to that, right? What's one component of reconciliation? Well, there's two parties, right? So one party has, both parties have to be willing to reconcile. Let's say in, in this case here of God, who was the offending party, God or us? Us, we were. So if I'm going to have any kind of relationship restored with God, if there's any possibility of that, what needs to be done? What, what's the first thing that's required? Well, that's from my perspective. What is well, from God's perspective? He has to be a. He has to be what? Willing to reconcile. Right? God has to be willing to do that. If God is not willing to reconcile, nothing else goes from there. Right? So what is required for God to reconcile? What must he do? He must be able to forgive my sin. Right? Well, how can he do that? How can he forgive my sin? How can he do that? Because God's just, right? How can he forgive my sin? Somebody had to take my place. Somebody had to pay the price for my sin. And why did Christ have to die? Why was death required? Part of the plan. What is the greatest expression of love you can do? Die. What's the greatest expression of love God could ever give us? To die for us. To die for us. To give his life for us. That's, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. The greatest expression of love is to die for someone. God died for me. He took my place. And if you think about it, you know, basically what is sin? What is it? When we talk about sin, what is that? Someone says, define sin for me. Contrary to God's nature. Whatever is contrary to who God is, right, is sin. All right? So any, any selfishness, any pride, any... Any exaltation of self is sin. That's what Satan's great sin was, wasn't it? 
He just wanted to be like God. He wanted to exalt himself above God. And God caught him. And what is the greatest act of, of uh, what's the opposite of asserting myself? Giving up myself, dying. God had to give of himself. He died for me. God was willing to reconcile the world to himself. And in order to provide a path of reconciliation, a debt had to be paid. Christ paid that debt. He took my place. He paid the penalty that I should have paid. All right? And that allows God to provide justification. Or as it says, that he can be just and the justifier. He can be just and the justifier. And he does that by this thing called imputation. What is imputation? Well, imputation is a accounting term. It's an accounting term. And uh, what it is is to put on account. To put on account. And so if you want to think about the way, the, a good idea of, of imputation is that we stand before God owing a debt none of us could ever pay. Never pay it off. Christ is standing there with an infinite positive bank balance. And Christ says, I'll tell you what, you give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness. You give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness. Let's trade. So what does God do? God reckons or credits the righteousness of God to us. And he takes our sin and credits that to Christ. There is a transaction that happens. An infinite debt. An infinite debt. Something you could never pay. And that's what Romans is all about. What does it mean to credit righteousness? I can't... And see, that, that's where Martin Luther got it. I mean, Martin Luther spent his entire life flagellating himself and and agonizing over his sin. Because he realized it was a debt he could never pay. Nothing you could ever do would erase your debt of sin. Nothing. And finally, when he was reading through Romans chapter 1, he got down to verse 17. The righteousness which is of God by faith. And all of a sudden he got it. Where does righteousness come by? It doesn't come by what I do. It comes by accepting God's forgiveness. It comes by accepting it by faith. And when I do that, what does God do? God credits Christ's righteousness to me, and God credits my sin to Christ. So as I stand before God now, how do I look? I look as righteous as Christ is. And since Christ's righteousness is an infinite righteousness... He can, for, he can impute that to as many people as imaginable and yet not diminish 
his righteousness one bit. Was the cross then the end of all of our sin? Because it's certainly still not imputed to Christ, or is it? It is. It is. For example, when you became a Christian, how many of your sins did God forgive? All of them. They're all taken and nailed to the cross. They're all there. Um, in fact, Paul uses the imagery of um, in, in Colossians where he talks about the, 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 the handwriting of ordinances against us. And uh, that refers to the ancient Roman legal um, practice of when a criminal was executed, they would take his sins or his crimes and nail them on the cross. And when he was executed, that signified these crimes were paid for. That, that's the imagery there. Um, taken my place. Christ took my place. He took the handwriting of ordinances against me. And Christ said, excuse me, um, I'll take that. I'll pay that. Because I could never pay it. How could I pay it? I could spend eternity in a lake of fire and never diminish the debt one bit. It's an infinite debt. And only by this concept of imputation, all right, can I be forgiven. And this, these two concepts, substitution and imputation, go hand in hand throughout the Old Testament, right? Throughout the Old Testament, you see in the sacrificial system, substitution. You see it with uh, Isaac on Mount Moriah where a lamb took it, or a ram took his place. Um, you see it in the garden where God killed the animals and took the blood. And, and that's probably a shocking thing for Adam and Eve who had never seen that. How, how an animal died for them. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this concept of substitution. And you see imputation when the high priest laid his hands on a scapegoat, thus transferring the sin of Israel to the goat. And the goat was taken out into the wilderness, never to return to the camp. This all goes back to imputation. These are vivid word pictures. So what happened when you became a Christian? What happened when you were saved? God took all your sin, past, present, future, and gave it to Christ. Actually, Christ, understand this, Christ took it willingly. It's not like Christ says, oh, no, not another one. No, he took it willingly. And then God took the righteousness, which is Christ, and imputed it to us. So forensically, and what does forensic mean? Legally. Legally, in God's sight, I am right now as righteous as Christ is. Nothing I can do can make me more righteous in his sight. Now, there's this process of sanctification, which is different. But when it comes before the bar of God, when it becomes, you know, eternal, um, determinative, you know, am I sins forgiven or not? I am forgiven, past, present, future. And you can't outsend God's grace, right? Because no matter what sin you've done, God's already known you're going to do it anyhow, and He's forgiven you anyhow. So you can't, you can't outsend God. You can't commit a sin to God and say, man, I forgot He was going to do that one. God knows He's forgiven us. And understand that imputation does not mean that Christ became, in essence, sin. That's the heresy of the TBN boys. 
That's the heresy of Crouch and Copeland and Hagen and these other guys on TBN, where they say Christ in essence became sin. In nature, he became sin. Could God become sin? No, you don't even have to think about that one very long. There's no way God could become sin. But Christ took upon himself by imputation the sin of the world so that as far as God was concerned, it is, it is as though Christ committed those sins. Christ did not commit those sins. But it is as though he did. There's a big difference between that. Because then what the Hagen and Copeland them say, well, Christ went and he suffered in the fires of hell for us. Folks, Christ did not go to hell. He did not suffer in the fires of hell. He was not tortured by the devil. All right. None of that. Is, is that because, well, years ago I heard that, you know, that when he said when Christ died, that he went to hell. And, and so he, you, you ever heard that before? Yeah, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. All right, that's total unadulterated. Yeah. And they like wrapping up. Well, yeah. And that's total unadulterated nonsense. All right. Christ is omnipotent. All right. He is not a victim. Christ is not a victim of the Satan. Christ is not subservient to Satan. Um, Christ was not tortured by Satan in hell. Christ is sovereign. Satan is on a very long leash. Satan is not sovereign. The difficulty, and one of the other heresies of the TBN people, is that they make Satan out to be more powerful than he is. Satan is on a leash. Satan can only do what God allows Satan to do. The, my favorite cartoon is Foghorn Leghorn. I love that. Uh, Satan, listen to me. Um, but Satan is like that dog. There's a rope limit. It's a very defined limit, and he can run up to that rope limit, and, and that's it. That's He can't go any farther. He can't. He can't go beyond that limit. God has Satan on a rope. Why do these ministers teach that? Because they're, I, I think it's because they are ignorant. They don't understand. God, understand that. Here's the other problem that you have. And I don't want to get into this. We'll spend all night on these guys. But they, they have a very defective view of the sovereignty of God. All right. God is in 100% charge of the universe. He, he is not bound by Satan. He is not subservient to Satan. He doesn't need to ask Satan's permission to do something. All right? And one of the heresies being taught is that supposedly when Adam sinned, he gave over sovereignty to Satan so that God can't do anything in the world without Satan's permission. And he's really got to sort of outmaneuver Satan on the chessboard here to try and pull off this salvation deal. Listen, God is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over him. God is, the, God is the ruler of the universe. Satan is the usurper. And Satan might have a little bit of freedom to do his thing that God allows him to have, but God has got him on a leash. Yes. And, and what they want to do, and, and the heresy that they come up with, is they bring God down and Satan up to somehow make them two cosmic struggling beings. Listen, they are not. 
God is sovereign. And by the way, nothing you do will make you like God. That's the other great heresy, that we're little gods. That That is that is teaching from the pit of hell. All right? You can stand out on a dark night and say, let there be light. Nothing happens till the sun comes up. All right? Whereas God, when he stood out on the universe and he said, let there be light, it was light. God has power in and of himself. And the other heresy is God does not use faith to create. They want to say, well, see, God used this power called faith out there to create the universe. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It's not, you don't have this universal nebulous like the force of Star Wars out there that God used to manipulate reality. Because that's what they tell you, that somehow if you can use faith to create reality and you can use faith like God did to create the world, that's bunk. All right, that's baloney. You don't even need to listen to that kind of stuff. All right. God did not use faith to create the world. God used his omnipotent power to create the world. All right. And there is no faith power out there that we can tap into and manipulate for our own personal advantage. There's a lot of heresies that come out of these guys. And a lot of people follow them. And the best thing I can do to tell you is if you've got TBN, you know, they got this parental blocking mechanism on your TV. Just block the channel. All right. And you'll be better for it. Okay, um, you don't need to listen to that. But one of the great heresies they have is they have this this notion that somehow Christ, in essence, in reality, in his essential being, became sin. No, that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that my sin was imputed to Christ, but that didn't make Christ sinful any more than when the priest laid hands on the goat, it made the goat sinful. All right. Christ became my sin bearer. He did not become sin. Had Christ become sin, what would have happened to the Trinity? It would have been shattered to pieces. And we wouldn't be here to discuss this stuff. No, Christ did not in essence become sin, but he took upon himself the sin. Yes? I have a question. all these years, I was going up Catholic and saying the Apostles' Creed, well, he 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 ascended into hell. As it says in the underworld. I understand what that is. Hell, underworld. He ascended there and led captivity captive. It says in Ephesians, Christ's death on the cross paved the way for people to be in the presence of God. And there's a whole discussion on what that meant. Um, it appears as though when saints in the Old Testament died, they went to a place called paradise. They didn't go to heaven. They went to paradise. And upon Christ's death, paradise was empty. All right. You could be in the presence of God. Heaven. Um, so, yes, he did. And he also proclaimed his victory over those that were in prison. Who are those? Well, the demonic angels and demons. He declared himself a victor. It was a, it was a declaration of victory. That's what it means when he preached to the spirits in prison. He didn't go preach salvation to them. He proclaimed his victory over them. That's what the word means. To proclaim a victory. Yes, they do. Um, okay, so in, in, in the paradise, uh, you know, there's in hell, in Christ, Yes. So, um, when the, when the second resurrection? Yeah. 
Well, they're in heaven now, and they're and they're not in their resurrected form. Remember, there's there's a resurrection body that's yet to come. Okay. Yeah. So when they were resurrected, when they when they rose with Christ, there's a few that were, that apparently a few were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. That you can get the hint where it says that you know some that had died and went into the city and people saw them and things like that. There's Christ the first fruits. We talked about that. Right. All right. But then the main harvest and the last gleanings is yet to come. What happens to you when you die right now? You go to heaven, but you're you have a, a form, but not a resurrected physical form. So some of them you see resurrected bodies. Yeah. And others just went to heaven. Yeah. And they're waiting on the resurrection. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. That's a euphemism that was used um, in the rich man and Lazarus discussion. And there's a whole debate on whether that's a real story or that's a parable. But whether you, whichever one it is, it tells you the truth. Yes. Is crucifixion? Why is God I don't understand the question. Why did he use crucifixion? Why didn't he let the Jews kill him as opposed to being crucified? Yeah. Um, that was the plan. Um, well, Psalm says he. Well, Psalm Psalm twenty two talks about the crucifixion in a veiled form. Um, Christ talks about being lifted up like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Um, Christ had to die as a bloody sacrifice for us. And the imagery in the Passover lamb, one of the things is they were not allowed to break the bones. So had he been stoned to death, as the Jewish custom. Um, also the fact that the Romans killed him, the Romans were representative of all of humanity. So there was a representative there that Christ was not just the savior of the Jews, but the savior of all mankind. Um, ultimately, it was God's plan. I don't have a better explanation than that. Well, the Jews turned him over, but, but the Gentiles killed him. But that's all part of God's plan. Ultimately, who killed Christ? Ultimately, who killed Christ? No, ultimately, who killed him? God did. Ultimately, God killed. Yet it pleased him to bruise him. What? Isaiah 12, or 53. Yet it pleased God to bruise him. All right? That was part of the point. And, and see, it goes back to what was the greatest expression God could have given a fallen humanity? To die for you. To die, to take your place. You know, and, you know, when, when, when I was listening to a, to a message by someone who, who talked on humility, and one of the things he says is, uh, uh, one of the ways to deal with this issue of pride in your life is every day go stand by the cross. And just think about it. Just stand by the cross. Because what do you deserve? You deserve hell. That's what you deserve. And what did you do 
to not deserve hell. What did you do to get saved? Well, really nothing, right? We love him because he loved us first. Who took the initiative? God did. It's not you. Stand before the cross and realize, you know, Father, if it wasn't for your grace, I'd be nothing. How can you be proud? Like the Pharisees patting themselves on the back for me, thinking that somehow God's obligated to them. You know, God's obligated to no one. God doesn't owe you anything. Come on. He owes you hell. God doesn't owe you life. He doesn't owe you breath. He doesn't owe you your next five seconds of life. He owes you death. He owes you hell. It's grace. Christ took my place. And of all the passages in the Bible, this is the greatest section of Scripture dealing with that concept of substitution and imputation. He didn't, be, he didn't become an essence sin, but he took my sin upon him. And God treated Christ as though Christ had committed every sin of every human being that ever lived. You know that, right? Who did Christ die for? Well, the elect, right? Let me explain that. It goes back to the old limited atonement we talked about last week. Somebody said, oh, that's a nasty word, limited atonement. Is Christ's death limited? That's only half the answer. Yes and no. Yes and no, okay? Whether, whether you're a five-point Calvinist or, a, or the most liberal Arminian possible, who goes to heaven? No. The people who believe. The whole argument is, who believes? The elect believe. Now, that's what the Calvinist says, and that's what the Bible says, and that's what the correct answer is. All right? But some say, now, nah, those who believe are the ones who decide in and of themselves, apart from the Holy Spirit, to believe the message of the gospel. Regardless of what, where you wind up on this, you know, where you come from, the answer is who believes? Those who believe go to heaven. They're the ones that get to heaven. So ultimately, who did Christ die for? He died for those who are going to heaven. Who's going to heaven? The elect are going to heaven. Now, does that limit the sacrifice that Christ made? Only those who that is that believers are going to hit it. No, he died for all. No, Christ died for all. Now, but you got to understand. Well, what does it mean that Christ died for all men? Sacrifice was enough for everybody. Right. It's not that it's efficacious for all, right? But it's sufficient for all. All right. Because wherever you land on this, you have to admit, unless you're a universalist where everybody goes to heaven, right? Only the people who believe get to heaven. So Christ's death is limited to the ones who believe, wherever you land on this thing. You following what I'm getting at? Following? Probably limited atonement. 
Yes and no. He died for only believers in the sense that his death is providing salvation for them. But he died for all men in the sense that his death is infinite in value. And had God elected all humanity, Christ's death would have more than sufficiently covered that. It's an infinite death. Yes, you're predestined. You didn't choose. God chose you. Christ died for those God chose. No. Christ died for those whom God chose, but his death is sufficient value for anyone. You got to make that distinction. You got to. But heaven only believers. Pardon? But to go to heaven only believers. Only believers go to heaven. That's the. That's yeah, the and, and and John, we're going to study when we study the gospel. Of God, John six should answer every question you have on this. It will answer all your questions. It will clear them all up. If you understand John six, you will be a Calvinist. All right. Because what Christ says is all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Right? Who was given to the Christ? The elect. So all the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Right? So there you've got God's gift to Christ. Christ says, I will accept all that the Father has given to me. And he says, and he says I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what is the will of him who sent me? Well, the will of him who sent me is everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All right, so who gets to heaven? Well, the people who see the Son and believe on him are raised at the last day. And it says, and this is the will of him that sent me, that all of the fathers given unto me, I should lose none, but raise him up at the last day. So, who believes? Those whom the Father has given me. All right? And you can't come to the Father unless what? The Holy Spirit draws you. All right? If you really understand John 6, this whole, it's, it's you don't understand, you'll never understand predestination election because our finite brains just can't put it all together. But the bottom line is, Christ is saying, God elected in eternity past those whom he would save. He gave them to Christ as a gift. Christ is going to accept all of them. Christ is not going to say, well, I don't like that one, Father. I'll, I'll give you that one back. No. All that the Father has given to Christ, Christ is going to take. Who are those? Well, the ones who the Father gave him will believe and be raised up at the last day. And all who see the Son and believe are raised up at the last day. Therefore, all who see the Son and believe are the ones whom the Father gave to the Son. And you do not have the case where someone sees the Son and believes and is not elect. Or someone is elect, but they never believe. It all goes together. Yeah. Christ's death is infinite in value. It's infinite. But it's only applied to those who believe. Who believes? Those that the Father gave the Son, the elect. 
That's the best way I can explain it. All right, well, we spent 40 minutes on one verse. All right. But I want it's really important because there's a lot of there's a lot of screwball theology that you're going to hear coming out of this verse. All right. And I want you to understand what the verse is saying, not what these guys on TBN are saying. All right. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. How can you receive the grace of God in vain? We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, right? I mean, that's what it says earlier on. Whenever you see this concept in the Bible, you always see it two sides to it. From God's perspective, God knows everyone who is elect and who will believe, and everything will happen just according to plan. But, you know, I don't have his book of life. Right? I don't know who the elect are. So how do I how do I deal with this whole concept of election? Treat everyone as if they're elect. Plead with them, right? I don't know who they are. Um, and this is the thing to understand. Nowhere in the Bible does it say by believing in the sovereignty of God, you can just sort of kick back and have a cappuccino and watch TV and not worry about the lost. It doesn't talk about that. Because I am the means, my we are the means whereby the message of the gospel gets to the elect. Right? God uses me to witness to the elect so that they can believe. I'm part of the plan. All right? And understand, nothing I do will keep an elect person out of heaven. And nothing I do will get a non-elect person in. So ultimately, it is not up to me. But, and this is the paradox, God uses me. God uses me. And Paul says, I am a minister of reconciliation. I'm an ambassador for Christ. And there's a sense of urgency to this. This is quoting out of Psalm and going back to um, the whole concept of the wilderness wanderings. And the whole big picture point of this is this. God's offer, forgiveness and grace, does not sit on the table forever. There's a deadline. Now, that deadline is different for different people. But there is a deadline. And when the deadline passes from the human perspective, you're done for. And that's the whole message of the wilderness wanderings, right? Israel wanders through the wilderness. They come up to the borders of the promised land, and they send the 12 spies in, and they all come back, and Joshua and Caleb say, let's go, let's have it. And ten of them say, we're, we're, we're done for them. They're bigger than us. Who do the people listen to? Well, the ten bad guys. God takes care of them. He opens up the earth, swallows them whole into the ground, straight to hell. Do not pass go. They didn't even get buried. And then uh, God tells Israel, you know, because you would not go, now you cannot go. 
Um, same thing happened to Israel. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, God's saying, repent, 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 repent. Isaiah 40, God says, too late. But when you come back from your captivity, there's, a, there's an invisible line that everyone who receives hears the gospel and does not believe crosses. And when they cross that line, there is no salvation for them. Why? God never draws them again. Does God, does God owe them a second chance? Well, if he didn't owe them a first chance, why does he owe them a second one, right? Does Israel ever get together? Not that generation. They all died in the wilderness. And, and, and what Paul is getting at here is saying, you know, there is an acceptable time for salvation, but God's offer is not always on the table. You need to believe when the opportunity is there because that offer may be withdrawn. And that, that was, that's really the message of Hebrews. I mean, if you get that, you really understand Hebrews quite a bit. Because in Hebrews, you know, the writer of Hebrews is constantly telling those listeners, saying, look, you're on the fence. You're going to go back to Judaism and kill a bull tomorrow? There's no more sacrifice for sin. And if you, if you understand the gospel and you understand the message of the good news and you understand salvation and you decide to abandon that and go back to Judaism, you're done for. You can't go back. You've got to go forward. There's an acceptable time of salvation. It's not forever. And so whenever we witness, we need to witness with a sense of urgency. The story goes of D.L. Moody, who preached a great sermon and told his congregation, I want you to go home and think about it. And that night, Miss O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern. Most of Chicago burned, and a lot of those people never did make it back to the next service. And D.L. Moody said, never again will I give people an opportunity to go think about it. There's a sense of urgency. Because whether you... Stop and think about it just from a logical perspective. Every person who dies and goes to hell after hearing a message from God, there, there, there comes a time when they've heard the message for the last time, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the time between them hearing the last message about the gospel and them dying may be minutes, days, years, or decades. But they've heard it for the last time. And what Paul's saying here is don't mess around with the grace of God. Don't, don't take advantage of that. You're, the day of grace is not always there. And from history, we know that to be true. When's the day of salvation? Now. What opportunity of salvation are you guaranteed of? The one that you have right now. You have no guarantee that you're going to want to believe tomorrow. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 2, he says, uh, be careful lest you drift past the harbor of safety. How do you do that? By neglect. Warning passage number one, neglect. You can neglect the gospel and not believe, and before long you just forgot about it because other things come in, and you never get around to doing it until it's too late. And then in, Man and then chapter 3 and 4, he says, Don't be like Israel. They came right up to the promised land, 
And because of unbelief, because they refused to believe God, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then in chapter 6, he says, don't be like those who you understand the, the, inf the um, elementary things. You understand about the ceremonial washings and the ceremonial laying out of hands. And you understand the rudimentary things. And you know about the gospel. But, you know, if you don't repent, there's, you can't be renewed again to repentance. Why? Because if you turn your back with knowledge of full light, what more can God do? God's given you his best offer. There's nothing else God can do. And if you turn back, you may become apostate. You may never believe. And then Hebrews chapter 10, if you, if you count the blood of the covenant unholy thing, how, well, how would you do that? Well, you count the blood of the covenant unholy thing and you say, you know, that bull that I'm going to sacrifice tomorrow down at the temple will do more to cover my sin than the death of Christ on the cross. What are you saying about Christ's death then? He was a criminal. He was an imposter. Then in chapter 12, it says, don't be like those who came up to the mount and didn't make it. Close is not good enough. And I hate to say it, but I think hell has a lot of people in it that almost believe. Like, what was it? Phillips. Felix. Almost. Almost you persuade me. It was a grip of the second. Almost you persuade me. Almost, Paul. And he didn't. And Paul says, because of that, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. What does Paul mean? Paul says, I want to make sure, this is important, what he's saying here in the next few verses. Paul is saying, I want to make sure that I am not an impediment. Now, you got to understand, there's a paradoxical concept here, right? From the grand eternal scheme of things, could Paul do anything to keep the elect out of heaven? No, no he couldn't. But what does Paul want to do as an ambassador? Right. When you're an ambassador, who do you represent? Your country, right? Now, if you're an ambassador and you go to a foreign country and you'll act like an idiot over there, what does that say about your country? Paul's saying, you know, we are ambassadors. We represent Christ. We represent God. I don't want to do anything in my ministry to bring shame or reproach on the name of Christ. And unfortunately, we have hundreds and thousands of people and pastors all over the country that bring shame and reproach on the name of Christ. Because of some moral failing, because of some financial failing, because of some issue of sin in their life, they make God look bad. They're all the same. Yeah. Well, listen, that, that's, a, that's a flippant way to deal with something that's very serious. Folks, we represent God. You know, all of us in here, we represent God in our job. People are watching. How do you act on the job? As believers, we should be the best workers we can be. We're not talking perfection here, right? None of us will hit perfection. But you know, our bosses... People we work for, I'll say, you know, 
they do their best. They work hard and do their best. They're honorable people. Your job is your ministry. And as a pastor or as a Christian leader, as that Paul is saying, I I, I want to, I strive to bring no offense to my ministry. I don't want anybody to blame my ministry as being an impediment to them believing. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, tribulation, needs, and distresses. How did Paul show up to them in weakness? Now, this 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 sort of here will will pull the plug on TBN a little bit, right? Because on TBN, the whole the whole mentality there is as Christians, you know, we should skate above everybody else, right? We shouldn't have financial difficulties. We shouldn't have health problems. We should have everything go right for us. What is Paul talking about here right off the bat? See, yeah, tribulation, needs, suffering. The mark of ministry is not you skate above everybody else. The mark of ministry is you're real. And people see, and remember the clay pots business a little bit earlier? Paul says we have this treasure in clay pots, that the excellency of the power may be not of us, but of God. He says, I was beaten, prison, riots, labor, sleeplessness, fastings. By purity, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, sincere love, word of truth, power of God, the armor of righteousness on the right and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, deceivers as yet true. The whole point there is Paul is saying, you know, here's a question. How do you evaluate your ministry? How did Paul evaluate his ministry? Ultimately, who was the only one that mattered to Paul? God. What does God think of my ministry? Because if you're worried about what do people think of my ministry, what happens? Well, some people think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and others think you're a, you're a weasel, right? I mean, that's what Paul's saying here. Some of them think me as honorable, and others think of me as deceitful. Some see me as rich, others see me as poor. Some give me a good report, some give me an evil report. And if you allow yourself to be bashed around by what people think of you in your ministry, you're going to really need some professional psychiatric counseling. That's why Paul says, I am, I am bound by my conscience. Because no matter what you do, somebody will put some ulterior motive on you. That's one of the hardest things to deal with, right? When somebody accuses you of something that you know is not true and you have no way to defend yourself. Paul's saying, you know, I don't evaluate my ministry by what other people think. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm alive, but I'm dying. Um, I'm sorrowful, yet I rejoice. I'm poor, yet I make many rich. I have nothing, yet I possess everything. From the world's perspective, you didn't have much, but from the eternal perspective, you had everything. 
Um, Paul's mark of his ministry was that no matter what he did, somebody was always saying something good or bad about him. And he evaluated his ministry on what did God think. Because he was an ambassador. He wanted to make sure that he didn't knowingly do anything. See, that's the other point here, folks. Look, you don't have to do anything for people to say bad things about you. Right? So don't give them an opportunity. You know? And that's sort of what Peter is saying. Yet if any of you suffer as a Christian, let it not be because you're a, an evildoer, a busybody, or a murderer, or a thief. You know, make sure you're doing it as a Christian. Make sure that your persecution is because of Christ, not because of your sin. That's what Paul's saying here. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide up. What does he mean? Paul's saying, I love you guys. Even though you've hurt me, even though they had, right? Even though they betrayed Paul, Paul says, my heart is wide open for you people. I love you. You're my offspring in the Lord. You're not restricted by us, but by your own affection. Paul says, you know, if you don't feel loved, it's not because of us, it's because of you. It's not because we have restricted our love for you. It's not because I've, uh, I've cooled off for you. It's because you've cooled off for me. Now, in return for the same I speak as children, you also be open. Look, you be open to me as I'm open to you. Let's rekindle that relationship we had at the beginning. Paul says, I love you guys. I want the best for you. Open your hearts to me as well. And you're going to see his attitude in the next chapter when he's talking to them about Titus and the report that Titus brought him about the Corinthian church. I mean, Paul had a genuine concern for their spiritual health and well-being. And he said, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What does it mean to be unequally yoked? This goes back to the Old Testament where, you know, you don't want to put a lamb and an ox together in a yoke, right? Don't be unequally yoked. All right? With unbelievers. Um, now, this is one of these other verses that have been really twisted a lot. Um, and made to say things it really doesn't, I think, say. Because he says, what fellowship has righteousness with the unlawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? What are those? Those are rhetorical questions, right? And what's the answer? None. So why are you unequally yoked with an unbeliever? And the whole question is, well, what does it mean to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever? Does it mean that you hang around them? You think it means that? No. No, because if it did, where would you have to go? Out of this world, right? You have to find yourself a desert island with, uh, what is it, that little ball that he had? What was the name of that? What was that little soccer ball that Tom Hanks had? Wilson, yeah. You'd have to find Wilson, go off on a desert island, be by yourself, right? Castaway, he had a little ball, Wilson, right? I guess, I mean, like, they wouldn't be like hanging around, though, right? 
No. And how do you know? How do you know it's it's okay to hang around with unbelievers? Well, you, sometimes you don't. But what example in the scripture can you go to that says it's okay to hang around unbelievers? Christ. Who do you hang around with? You know, everybody Christ hung around with was worse worse than he was. You know, and yet he hang around with them, right? And what was his great? What was the great uh, accusation the Pharisees gave him? Well, you know, you hang around with the riffraff, with the tax collectors and the publicans, and the lawyers. No, I'm just gonna. But the tax collector, tax, you hang around with the tax collector and the prostitutes and the sinners. And, and you understand the Pharisaical mindset? They want to be. They wouldn't want to be caught in the same room with one of these people. In fact, these people were prohibited from going into the temple. Do you know that? They had to stand outside. The publican, remember the publican and tax collector in Matt Luke? The publican was not allowed in the temple. If he was, he would have been escorted out. They didn't want him near him. A, fair, a Pharisee didn't want to be within 10 feet of him, lest he be tainted. All right? Folks, that's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about is when it comes to common endeavor in ministry. What communion has light with darkness? None. Yeah. So it's not. It's not a rule for dating. Not, not this. A rule for marriage. I, no, I think I think First Corinthians seven goes better with marriage. Okay. That's not what. What's what's the three most important? Context, context, context. Is the context here marriage? No. no, so he's not talking about marriage. What's he talking about? Spiritual ministry. Spiritual ministry. That's what. That's the context. His spiritual ministry, the ministry that he's in. And the warning to the Corinthians is don't hang around and do ministry with people who are not believers. Because what communion has Christ with Satan? None. What concord has light with darkness? Well, none. And what are you going to do with the temple of God and the temple of idols? Well, none. There's no commonality. And why is that? Because 100% of the time when you mix white with black, what do you get? Black. Just a different shade. But you get black. Never does the black become white. The white always becomes black. You never... Hang around with unbelievers in ministry. All right? Now, th this is why, for example, I will have nothing to do with a Billy Graham crusade. Period. Wow. This. Who does Billy Graham have sitting up there with him on the platform? Well, he's got Roman Catholics. He's got Lutherans. He's got, you name it, he's got them there. All right. Now, are Catholics going to heaven? Only the bad ones. Bad Catholics go to heaven. Good Catholics never get there. I'm sorry, they don't. Why do you say bad? The only way to, to go to heaven being a Catholic is you've got to reject the Catholic theology, which makes you a bad Catholic from their perspective. And I mean, she is really smart. And I asked her at work, why is she a Catholic? And her dad came over from Ireland. 
and they're Catholic. And she says, I can't go against my dad. And I said, but don't you think they do things wrong? And she says, I know the difference. So I left it at that. Folks, yeah, huh? They do. The whole point here, Paul's saying, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to common endeavor in ministry, you don't put two things together that are completely dissimilar and expect a good outcome. Just like you don't yoke an ox with a lamb, neither should you yoke a believer with an unbeliever because the unbeliever will drag down the effectiveness of the believer 100% of the time. It's called compromise. And when it comes, now that doesn't mean that you're obnoxious and hate-filled and all that kind of, that's not what we're talking about here. But when it comes to Christian endeavor and Christian ministry, how can you say we're going to have an evangelistic campaign and we're going to have all the Catholics and the Protestants all together? If you know anything about theology, what do you know about Catholicism? It is demonic. It is, it is idolatrous to the core. It is. I know. And they're all idolaters. And they're all idolaters. They're all idolaters. But over the ages, they have changed for the better. No, they haven't. They're just, they've just sort of morphed. They're still as evil. They're still as evil to the core. You, you, think, you think John Paul, you know, I remember when John Paul II, what is it, John Paul II just died? The one who just died? Was it John Paul II? You know, you have all these all these Christian things going gaga about how, you know, how holy and godly and how much of an example it was. That guy was pagan to the core. He is not in heaven. You realize that. Well, you do now. You've heard it from me. He is not in heaven. He is not in heaven. Why is he not in heaven? No, he believes in the Trinity. He believes in the deity of Christ. Why is he not going to heaven? Mary's co-redemptrix. In fact, in fact, it's better to be getting good with Mary than it is with Jesus. You know, Jesus is a little bit crusty and hard, but you know, get get through with his mom, and she'll talk him into you know letting you in. That's the I'm telling. I'm not making it up. Oh yeah, yeah. He he. In fact, he would have done it if he could have got away with it. He dedicated he dedicated his entire pontificate to Mary. Oh, that's what he said. Yeah. yeah. When he when he was when he was shot, remember when they when they had that assassination attempt on him? Yeah. He 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 was saved and he thanked Mary for saving him. And he yeah, and he dedicated his entire pontificate to Mary. I'm not making that up. I've got a good I've got a good C D that'll straighten you out on that real quick. You know, the whole point and, and it's you look at you look at the theology of the Catholic Church. Is Jesus Christ the Savior? Well, yes and no. He's the Savior in as much as he gets you started, but it's up to you to save yourself. With the help of the church. With the help of the church. Yeah. It is an apostate religion. 
It is apostate. It is not Christ alone. It is not faith alone. It is not grace alone. And it's not sola scriptura. Bible alone. What is it? Well, the Bible is as is interpreted by the Pope. You know, he'll tell you what the Bible really means. Why do you think the Catholic Church burned people at the stake for having a copy of the Bible? They're godly people. They didn't want them to read the Bible. They didn't want them to read it because when the people read it, they found out, wait a minute, that's not right. And that sort of has a way to ruin your, your little scam. Couldn't even understand the services. So. Yeah. Folks, you know, Catholicism as a system is pagan to the core. Are there Catholics in there that are saved? Well, yeah, there is. There are. But let's not make the mistake to thinking, well, if we have an evangelistic campaign with Catholicism, we're going to do people a favor. No, you're not. No, you're not. The Mormons are faithful to their faith, too. And yes, well, guess where they're going? They're going to hell along with Joseph Smith. And you know what? The Islamic guy that blows himself up to kill a few pagans, where do you think he's going? He's sincere. He is, he, is, he is sincere. He's got more dedication than most Christians, yet sincerely wrong. Paul is saying, look, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to the things of God, don't yoke yourself with unbelievers because there is no concord you can have with them, and they will just mess you up. Compromise will kill you. Doesn't mean you shouldn't minister. No, they're the they're the mission field. <laughs> they're not a co-minister. They are the mission. All right, they are the mission. And and Paul is saying, you know, for God said this: I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Who does God hang around with? Who does God hang around with? <laughs> People who, 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 God, well, God hangs around, you know, the unbelievers. He came to seek and to save. But think of the eternal state. Who's God going to hang around with in the eternal state? People who are like him, right? So why are you hanging around with people that are not like God? You say you love God. You say you love Jesus Christ. And yet you're going to do ministry with people that are in direct opposition to everything that God stands for. You're going to have a close relationship with them? You know, I love my wife very much. Am I going to hang around with someone that hates her? No, I'm not. I don't know if anybody doesn't like Donna, but... Seriously, I don't know if anybody doesn't like her. But if somebody hated her and despised her, do you think I'd be close friends with that person? No, we don't share anything in common. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are you going to hang around with people who hate him? No. They're the mission field. I'm not talking about perfection here, you know, because ultimately, no matter who you do ministry with, you know, you're not perfect. That's not the point. The point is, are you going to hang around with an unbeliever? Are you going to do ministry with unbelievers? Are you going to yoke yourself to an unbeliever? Your value systems are totally different. Now, by extension, and John pointed this out, by extension, I think the principle can be drawn into other areas. Family, marriage. 
I don't think this is talking about it here because 1 Corinthians 7 does. But if you are a believing man, are you going to marry an unbelieving woman? Yeah. What's Paul saying here? Yeah, you do now. Well, well, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says you can marry in the Lord. So let's get that one right. But the principle here is, and this has happened, you know, some godly Christian woman will marry some bum thinking that she's going to lead him to the Lord. And next thing you know, she's as messed up as he is or vice versa. Folks, it doesn't work that way. Who do you hang around with? What kind of people do you hang around with? No. For, for, for not for, let's take religion out of it. Let's take religion out of it. What kind of people do you hang around with? People who like, think like you, do this, like the same things you do, you know, like, like doing the things that you do, you know. If you like going, if you like seafood, you want to hang around somebody that likes seafood. If someone can't stand seafood and they can't stand your, your hobbies and they can't stand your entertainment, you don't hang around with them. They might be a friend at a distance, but they're not somebody you're close with. You are close with and hang around with people who think and act like you do. And that's what Paul is saying. Who should you hang around with in ministry? People who have the same values, the same drives, the same feelings that you do, and the same theology that you do in our believers. Because if you have a different theology, if you're if you if you're serving God and He's serving Mammon, you're not gonna you're not gonna it's not gonna work. Now, when you said when you right? Because it's gonna affect you. It's gonna affect your effectiveness. Because you have different masters. Don't don't go there. And God is saying, I will dwell with them and walk with among them. I will be their God. They'll be my people. This is talking about God being with his people. Therefore, because God's going to be with us, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing and I will receive you. If you love God, you're going to separate yourself from those who hate him. Right? That's what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, I hate those who hate you. Well, that's not a very godly thing for the psalmist to say. Well, God thought it was, right? I'll be a father, you should be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Here's the point. If we love God, we're going to want to hang around with people who love God. We're not going to want to hang around with people that don't love God. My very best, closest friend that I ever had at Church of the Open Door had a bad falling out here, and he got to the point where everything that this church did was wrong. He hated the church, he hated the pastor, he wanted the pastor dead, on and on and on it goes. And you know what happened to my friendship with him? It's gone. I don't want to hang around with somebody like that. I don't want to hang around with somebody who's negative all the time. I don't want to hang around with somebody who hates the things that I love. Right? If I love God and he hates God, I don't want to hang around with him. I don't want to go and listen to him tell me all the faults of everybody. I don't need that. Really, that's what Psalm 15 is saying, right? You want to hang around in God's presence. Who, is, who, can, who can dwell in your temple? Who can stand in your holy hill? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Someone who speaks the truth in his heart. Someone who does not take up a reproach against his neighbor. God doesn't need you listening to the faults of other people. God knows them better than you do. God wants people to hang around with him 
that have the same values that he has. Therefore, your, your closeness to God depends on how well you think like he does. And Paul is saying, stay away, ministry, stay away from people who have opposite views. Don't hang around them. Don't align yourself with them. You say, but it's for a good cause. No, don't go there. I got a, I got a buddy like this who I grew up with. He, you know, he, he studied uh, Muslim. <laughs> he, He's the mission field. Yeah. Yeah. He's the mission field. He's the mission field. And Paul says, you need to come out from among them and be separate. Now, this idea of separation here is not separation in the sense of isolation. It's separation in the sense of ministry. Who do you do ministry with? And by the way, this does not mean that everybody you do ministry with will see every theological point that you see, right? But when it comes to the essential truth of the gospel, what will they see? The same thing. When it comes to the person and work of Christ, when it comes to their view of Scripture, when it comes to their view of holiness, you're on the same page. They might think Nebuchadnezzar is heaven, you might think he's not, but that's not going to cause you to separate from him. All right? And I think practically, you know, this, this to me, you know, some people ask me about Billy Graham and that. Is Billy Graham going to heaven? Well, yeah, he is. But look, you know, I really have trouble with the way he aligns himself with pure pagan unbelievers, thinking that somehow that's going to be a positive thing. It's not. It's compromise. I think you can possibility, you know, you can win them over that. You win them over by ministering to them, not with them. Well, you know, I, I the last time Billy Graham came to this area, I was invited to be part of that. I did not um, become part of that thing. I didn't go. I never heard Billy Graham preach. Never went to the crusade, and I never wanted to serve in a um, in a uh, counseling capacity. Somebody said, "Well, why? You know, maybe you can lead somebody to the Lord." Well, number one, if they're elect, they're going to go to heaven whether I do anything or not. That's not a cop-out, all right? But I'm not going to align myself and go sit next to a Catholic father and have somebody come down the aisle and have him go off into the Catholic church and become a good Catholic. Hmm. I'm going to look him in the eye and say, don't go with that guy. And immediately now I'm disqualified from being a counselor because I would dare, you know. I wouldn't have made it. And, you know, here's the other thing. This is, the, this is the thing that bothers promise keepers. Oh, promise keepers. Great, wonderful, great, yeah, wonderful. Well, you know, the, the, the Mormon stakes send their guys off to the promise keeper rallies. Now, if think about it. If, you have, if there's a cult who comes to your gig thinking it's going to help their guys, what are you not telling them? Yeah, there's a problem with that. I mean, the Mormons are saying, I want you to go listen to this guy because he, you know, he's got some good things to say. I'm not telling them something they need to hear. And I think he was wrong in doing so. And I tell him, if you're sitting right there, I say, I sh you shouldn't have done it. 
But you say it's so watered down that it makes sense to the Mormons. Yeah. Yeah. I had a guy, I, some one of the guys went to the Million Man March thing over there in, in Washington with uh, promise keepers and all that. Guy got up and gave the gospel. He said, anybody who accepted Christ right now, raise your hand. Everybody raised their hand. You tell me all those guys were unbelievers when they got there? It's it's crowd mentality. It's mob mentality. No. And so here's the other problem. Here's the other problem. Um, and promise keepers, you got somebody like Joe Stahl gets up and preaches the word of God. Now, Joe's a good man. Loves the Lord. He's on. He's he's straight. You can listen to him. And then J.C. Ryle comes up right behind him. J.C. Ryle is the pastor of the Boulder Vineyard. You know, the whole holy rolling laughter, tongues, whatever, nuttiness out there. Now, if you're the average person doesn't know any biz better, what are you going to think about J.C. Ryle? Oh, they're the same. They're good. They're great. They're wonderful. And J.C. Ryle has a distinctly separate and different theology than Joe Stoll does. But the average person doesn't know the difference. There's a lot of good ones that speak at them. I'm not. I'm not disparaging that. I'm just saying I can't. You know, I can't in good conscience go to promise keepers and have somebody think, well, that's a good thing to go listen to. I mean, it's like you. It's like eating a chicken. You know, it's good to eat the chicken. You got to throw the bones. Yeah, I pick the bones and all that stuff out of it. Um, I'm mature enough, I think, in the faith that I can go and get something out of it and benefit from it. But there are people that don't know any better. They just take the whole thing. They eat the bones and the gizzard and the livers and everything else. They think nothing of it. Be separate. Watch who you do ministry with. Because it's going to affect other people. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.